Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Sources with Boyd Matheson. Faith leaders in our community often help people through mental health or other challenges they face in life. Uh, Obviously, as we come up on the 20th anniversary of 9-11 in the midst of a pandemic uh, and a host of other social ills and challenges uh, going on, how do those in the faith community help those who've experienced a tragedy or, or even just a hiccup in their life's journey? Uh, very pleased to have joining us on the program today, Rabbi Avrami Zippel, uh, who is the Utah-born rabbi, Utah's first, and uh, someone we always look to for great insight. And uh, Rabbi, thanks for making some time for us today. Hey, boy, good afternoon. Thanks for having me. How are you? Doing really well. So as as you look at your uh, community, and as we all kind of look at our communities around us, uh, as we approach days like 9-11, uh, how do you approach it as a faith leader? Uh, how do you minister and, and help people uh, when you have something like a, a large-scale tragedy like a, a 9-11? It's a great question. I, you know, For me, thinking about 9-11, for starters, it makes me feel a little old as we come up on the, on the 20th anniversary. And there's, a, there's a lot of conversation on social media recently. You know, What was the first big global event that you remember? And for me and a lot of my generation, that was 9-11. I was 10 years old in 9-11. And, you know, that was kind of the, the first big story that I remember, you know, being glued to. We didn't have a television at home, but we went to a, you know, furniture store a couple of days later and just being glued to the TV and the, and the newspaper footage and just kind of grasping what was happening in the world around me. And as a kid, that was a lot. And I remember as a 10-year-old really just trying to understand what that meant. You know, what did it mean that the bad guys had gotten control of an airplane and flown it into a building and killed thousands of people. In what world does that happen? In what sort of faith system that we function in, can that ever be okay? And as I've you know grown up, and sadly, I guess, in the world we live in, seen enough tragedy, whether it be personally or, or collectively, as a faith leader, I think it's something which I've really strongly started to believe in, that we can't shy away from these conversations when people in our communities, when, when people in the world at large want to know our take on, you know, how can this sort of thing be happening? How is this okay? You know, who, who signed off on this in the office up there on high? Yeah. We need to be engaging in those sorts of conversations. And frankly, you know, spoiler alert, we're not going to have good answers to those questions. We're never going to be able to justify how, you know, thousands of Americans died on 9-11, how 13 soldiers died in Afghanistan a couple, a couple of weeks ago, or any tragedy, natural tragedies, whatever it is that happened around the world, 
We can never justify those. We can never provide rationale for those. But that can never make us shy away from engaging in those conversations and, uh, and trying to help people find solace, find comfort, find purpose, find meaning through these dark moments. Yeah, and it is that finding meaning, I, I think, where we we often get lost. You know, we look to our uh, higher education and to science that uh, is really good at taking things apart to figuring out how they work uh, as opposed to the, the, I think, sometimes the harder spiritual work of putting things together to find out what they really mean. Uh, and you have been one, Rabbi, who has demonstrated, I think, one of the ultimate uh, leadership qualities uh, of being courageously vulnerable and I think it is something that we have to do where I think that rugged uh, American individualism uh, keeps many of us uh, just trying to pull our, our own selves up from our own bootstraps uh, as opposed to engaging, as you said, in these important conversations. How do you, how do, you do that as a, as a faith leader? Create space so that people can be comfortable and confident uh, being a little bit vulnerable, and it, it does take a little bit of courage. Sure, I, I appreciate that. I think that you put it really well, Boyd, in terms of the need for vulnerability. I think that what a lot of people kind of gloss over is that when dealing with tragedy, be it personal or collective, it's vital to go through all of the different steps in the healing process, and one does not cancel out another. I was reading a book recently about the tremendous surge of national pride in, in, a, in a very positive way that kind of swelled after 9-11 and, you know, the displays at sporting events and you know, our, our, our brave men and women went out to battle and it was the war on terror and you know, they're going to go wipe out the bad guys. And there was a certain connotation that doing that, that wiping out the bad guys, that, you know, ridding the Middle East of terror, ridding the world of larger terror was going to somehow make us feel better. It was going to make us heal from the tragedies of 9-11. I think that there, there's a couple important things over here. We needed to acknowledge it for a lot of families, the losses they suffered on 9-11 we're never going to be made whole. You could rid the world of every bad guy that ever did exist or might exist. They're never going to get their loved ones back. And so I think it's vital that we realize that each step of the healing process is so crucial and takes its own time, needs to be given its own, its own attention. There is mourning, there is grieving, there is coming to terms with this immeasurable loss. And then there are steps that we take to move forward, be that on a personal level or on a national level or on a larger level. But vulnerability and the ability to to recognize and to acknowledge, you know, wow, we just had our, our, our hearts torn out of us. And, you know, thousands of families lost a loved one. In so many instances, the breadwinner, you know, a focal part of their family, a parent, uh, someone who meant so much to so many people. We can do a whole great many things to kind of avenge their death, but they're still gone. And we need to cope with that and deal with that on its own. And I think that's where vulnerability and the need for grieving and not kind of dousing our grief in, in, in the military or, or other ways of kind of glossing over the pain really, really is vital and so crucially important. Yeah, I, I love the way you've said that. And uh, Rabbi, just one last question for you before we let you go. Um, I, I do think we have become very good in this nation at those moments, uh, that mo those moments of unity after 9-11, after a school shooting, after a, uh, a tragedy of one form or another. Uh, but I'm worried, uh, and I think part of that may be some of the disconnect from uh, different kinds of, of faith communities uh, that we're, we're not 
we're not very good anymore at the sustaining the movement part, the hard work, the heavy lifting part that comes after a moment of grieving, like you said, or a moment of coming together. Uh, as a faith leader, how do you help foster that, uh, that we can do this, we can sustain this and not just have a, a nice moment or a nice uh, memorial uh, or whatever it may be, but how do we sustain this? You know, I love the fact that you're asking me that question today, and, and, and the 20th anniversary of 9-11 this year falls out on the Jewish calendar when it does. So yeah. we just concluded literally last night 48 hours of Rosh Hashanah. It's the beginning of the new year, and 9-11 this year falls out right between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, these 10 really solemn and somber days on the calendar, you know, the new year and the day of forgiveness. And very, very powerful days with very, very powerful themes. And obviously, on um, Tuesday and Wednesday of this past week, synagogues were fuller than they have been in a very, very long time, and that thread will continue into next Thursday with Yom Kippur. And I tell people when they come to high holiday services that inspiration is like Tylenol. Inspiration lasts four to six hours until the next dose kicks in. Uh, and, and, and people come, you know, to, to services on the high holidays, and they're on a high, and they're, you know, and, and, they're, and they're feeling so devout, so spiritual. And that's awesome, and that's great. Yes. And after that, it's usually a question of if that lasts, you know, three days, seven days, maybe, maybe even take it to the end of the month, go for like the full 30 days. And we know, we know that inspiration is fleeting. And I think that's, that's across the board in every faith and every yeah. social issue, whatever it is, inspiration is fleeting. And it really behooves us to make lasting change and to not, to not kind of skate off that high, you know, to, to take that momentary feeling of elation that we feel for whatever reason and find ways to tie that down into tangible action that will leave a lasting result on our lives. And I think it's so vital whenever we find ourselves in a moment where we feel that high bubbling up, and that high is a good thing. That high is something which needs to be developed to, whilst it's still bubbling, to not just allow ourselves to ride that euphoric reaction, but to give ourselves the heavy lifting of assigning real, tangible, lasting work that will allow that inspiration to go on for some measure of time. Oh, fantastic. Rabbi Abrami Zippel, always appreciate your insight, and uh, we know it's going to be a very good 5782, and uh, we'll have you back real soon to continue our conversation there. Look forward to it. Thanks, bud. All right. We're going to step aside for bottom of the hour news. When we come back to the University of Utah Law School is marking the 20th anniversary of 9-11 with a fascinating event. You don't want to miss our conversation. Coming up with Professor Amos Giora next on KSL News Radio. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do? in the face of an international disaster decades in the making. That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.